Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. We provide straightforward information by bringing excellent guests with real-world experience in all topics related to commercial real estate investing. And in today's episode, we will be covering how to overcome adversities as you are investing in real estate. What if something happens to the economy? How can you prepare for that? We are chatting with Mike Morawski. He has created a $100 million company in real estate investments, and then he lost it all. How did he overcome it? What lessons did he learn? We are breaking this interview down into two episodes. I don't want to spoil the story. I will let Mike explain it. Here we go. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to focus this session on mistakes because, you know, I heard from so many listeners that people don't really talk about their mistakes in other podcasts and how we all go through situations that are not easy, all of us. And that's just the reality. So I'm excited to uncover and unpack some things that happened with you and how you overcame them. Uh, But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Thanks, Stephanie. I I really appreciate you uh, having me on and being able to share. Um, I hope that, uh, you know, I always try to tell people that my goal is to bring some hope and inspiration along with some knowledge. But I've been in the real estate business for 30 years. My wife and I house hacked a couple of houses. And, you know, Stephanie, I've always believed success leaves clues. I heard Jim Rohn say years ago, success leaves clues. And if you follow successful people, you can ultimately cut the learning curve and learn a lot faster and progress a lot faster. So I met a real estate agent along the way while we were doing those house hacks that was really successful. And I went to him and said, hey, I think I'd like to go in the business. And he said, you know, I think you'd be great at it and really encouraged me to go in the business. As I started selling residential real estate, my first nine months in the business, I sold 78 houses. I was REMAX Rookie of the Year that year. I went on to build a team selling 125 homes a year and did that consecutively for about 12 years. Fast forward 2005, I started to see the market starting to shift and soften a little bit. And I thought, geez, I don't know what's really going to happen, but I think something is coming down the pike. So I I decided I wanted to shift market classes. I was selling residential. I always wanted to be in the multifamily business. So I decided to to go out and syndicate apartment deals. So 2005, I went ahead. I, I syndicated my first apartment deal. I raised the capital to do it, bought a small 11 unit deal and thought that it was going to be great and found out very quickly that I made a couple of mistakes, right? I didn't underwrite, I didn't look at the deal right. But what it did was it caused me to really look at the business and it caused me to really evaluate what you needed to do. So I wrote a buying strategy and through my buying strategy, I was able to go and look for specific types of multifamily deals. And I wrote a a plan to do the underwriting and to look at markets and things like that. Things that you normally have to do, right? Mm -hmm. But I kind of learned all this on my own along the way. Ultimately, I wound up in the next 30 months raising $18 million in private capital. I bought 4,000 apartments. It was about $60 million in uh, multifamily 
uh, real estate. And I went on to build a property management company managing 7,500 units. Stephanie, I ultimately built a $100 million company in that short period of time. One of the things I would say is that I grew way too fast, was very unstable as a company. So, so you grew too fast and there are also people that are growing too fast today. I think personally that it's okay to grow too fast as long as you're doing it the right way. So what happened along the way that it was a mistake or however many mistakes you want to chat about today? And then what happened after that? Because I don't want to spoil the story. Yeah, well, great question. Uh, so I said I grew way too fast. You know, I built a company, $100 million company, had 100 employees working for me. We, had, uh, we were in five markets around the country, uh, 4,000 apartments. And I thought that when we were buying property that I had a team behind me that was going in and doing the rehab and getting the work done and restabilizing properties. And that wasn't happening. What we should have done is looking back, you know, is, is take a property, get it stabilized, then go buy the next one. Well, I didn't do that. I mean, as an example, I always say, hey, 2007, I closed 17 transactions for 2,700 units, a lot of real estate in a quick period of time. Yeah. Not only that, but I was undercapitalized. I didn't raise enough money and I was over leveraged. So I bought all that real estate, $60 million worth of real estate at 85% loan to value. <sighs> yeah, exactly. And what were the cap rates at that time? Give more oh, or less. That's funny. You know, so yeah, cap rates were like 13%. 14%, really? 12%. Yeah, they were, they were a lot higher than they are now. So pricing was a lot different. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, funny story. I, I wrote a book called Exit Plan. Somebody was reading the book six months ago and he called me, he got off the plane. He goes, did you really buy that deal at a 13 cap? I said, yeah. So what was funny was that I know the investor who just bought that deal that I bought at a 13 cap and he bought it at a four camp. Yeah. So it just goes to show you where the market's at. So, and just so listeners know, when, when cap rates go down, price goes up. Yeah. So it's an inversion uh, factor. Well, and so, not only that, just a little parenthesis there. So you had a huge buffer, I think, with that cap rate. Uh, but at 4% cap, people don't have that much buffer in case 10% vacancy happens or rent goes down 10%. So that's that's a significant buffer, in my opinion, even though you were at um, you know 85% loan to value. So what yeah. happened there that and, and I just want to revisit that 85% loan to value. So your listeners know, I don't think anybody should be in a real estate deal that they're not 65 to 75% LTV. Yeah. Um, I, I even see loans today. Some A lender just sent me an email last week saying, hey, we have loans at 80 and 85% LTV. And I thought, geez, that's just, that's suicide. Yeah. That's crazy. So I had all this real estate. 2008 rolls around. And if anybody remembers, 2008 was the worst economic crisis the country's ever seen, the world's ever seen. We wind up hitting a brick wall uh, in a freight train at 200 miles an hour. And what happened was people started to move out of apartments. So in 2008, when the market shifted, we had all this bad paper and foreclosures go to the market. And my thought was, hey, you know, people are going to need a place to live. 
They're going to lose their house. They're going to need a place to live. Well, that wasn't necessarily what happened. People went home. People, you know, doubled up. Mm. And so our occupancies dropped. So 2008 was like hitting a brick wall. We started to come off of the rails, uh, really started to unwind as a company. I had, um, by 2010, my occupancies had dropped and my NOI had dropped as a result of occupancies dropping. So we went to some lenders, some lenders helped us restabilize deals, but we still couldn't mitigate the storm. I had a number of deals. I had 38 companies at the time and I had a number of deals that were very profitable and then others that were not as profitable. So what I did was I started to take money from my profitable companies and move it into my non-profitable companies. And here was my thought around the whole situation was this is a recession. Recessions tend to last 17 or 18 months. Yeah, They have a 10 or 12% correction in the marketplace and then it bounces back. Well, this thing lasted seven or eight years. It had a 40% correction in the market and, and people are still affected by it today, which is just amazing. But I thought, you know, hey, if I move money between companies, when the, when the market comes back, I can put the money back. My accountant and my attorney both said, it's okay to do that. Just leave a paper trail. And that's what I did. I left the paper trail, uh, but the market never came back. And as a result of that, I didn't disclose it to my investors. You know, I should have just let a few deals go to foreclosure. I should have let a few investors get hurt. We would have weathered the storm better. But I thought, you know what? I'm a hero. I want to save everybody. I want to yeah. tell you after the fact, hey, here's what we did. And we protected everybody, but I didn't disclose it. So for non-disclosure, I wound up uh, being charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges and got sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Did your lawyer tell you that you had to disclose that? Uh, no. That was not really ever part of the conversation. And honestly, I never thought I was breaking the law. So and how come the lawyer doesn't get charged? Because yeah. you specifically asked a client question, right? That yeah. he guided you in one way. So I'm really wondering what happened there. Yeah. So because I was a, you know, a licensed professional, because you raise money, you're held at a different standard, right? You, when you take someone else's money, if it's a nickel or a dollar or a hundred million dollars, you're held at a different standard. You have a fiduciary responsibility, so you should know better, is what the court says. Even so, though the lawyer who should know better than you and you're paying for their right, services right. did not tell you. Right. Here's how I look at it today. Now, I didn't look at it this way back then, but I look at it this way today. Made a few mistakes, business mistakes learned from those along the way, have a different perspective on business today and a different perspective on the markets. I think I'm more cautious. I'm not as prideful or greedy as I might have once been trying to be the hero and make everything happen. You know, if I had to look at the five mistakes I made, I grew too fast, very unstable, undercapitalized, over leveraged. And then Stephanie, I didn't listen to people around me. I didn't pay attention to the details. Here's a quick story. So my accountant and my attorney might've said that, and, and that's okay. You know, we, we knew what we knew. We had the data at that point and we could operate at that level. But I think what wound up happening was that 
because of what happened in the world, they had to pick the low hanging fruit and make examples yeah. of people yeah. and what happened. But here's an interesting story, Stephanie. In 2008, I was sitting in a closing in Cincinnati and I'm waiting to get a deal closed. And at the time it was the biggest deal we were closing. It was about 280 units. And I'm waiting for my office to wire $500,000. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And it's finally 10 to five in the afternoon, I get my ex-partner on the phone. And the first thing he says to me is, hey, I don't know how to tell you this. And you know, the first thought that goes through my mind is tell me what, you know, <laughs> where, where's my money? I gotta get this deal closed. Well, he had taken money from the escrow account and moved into the operating account. And what I said at that point was, look, when we went into business, the first conversation we had was you never do that. I said, you broke that, that rule. And he goes, I know, I, th I thought I could have the money back. And I said, listen, I said, let me dry close this, which means I signed all the paperwork, told him I'd have the deal funded by Tuesday. This was on Wednesday. I told him I'd have the deal funded by Tuesday and we'd be able to take possession. And the next day I start raising capital and I raise enough money in the next two days. I give away his equity in the deal and bring in a few more investors. We get the deal closed. It's fine. And it happened to be one of the best deals we owned moving forward. But here's what happened on Friday night. I go to dinner. Um, my wife. Now, let me just clarify that I never told my wife about business, probably a critical mistake in my life, a mm -hmm. critical mistake in relationship, yeah. but I never told my wife about business. I would That's tell her, oh, got a new investor, got, you know, closed a new deal, but yeah. never anything bad that was going on. Well, on the way home that night, on Friday night, she says, you know what? I don't trust him. So I think I'm going to be a good husband. And I go, hey, honey, don't worry about this. I have it under control. And I didn't have anything under control. I knew that the wheels were starting to come off. So what I should have said, though, at that point was, tell me more. Why don't you trust him? You know, that kind of just went to the wayside. That was on Friday. On Wednesday, a uh, few days later. So now it's a week later after that, after trying to get that deal closed, mm -hmm. I a lunch with my attorney. And my attorney, after lunch, we're walking across the parking lot, puts his arm around me, which was a rarity. And he said, look, I just want you to know that I don't like what's going on, the things that I'm seeing. I'm not quite sure what's up with your partner, but you better pay attention to some things. So here I have two people within a week say, hey, there's something going on. I say, I have it all under control. Don't worry about it. I'm ignoring the red flags. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people today is don't ignore the red flags. Yeah. Listen to a spouse. I'm a firm believer that, that God puts women in our lives uh, that we uh, build these real married to that are smarter than us. Mm -hmm. And I should have listened to her, but I didn't do that. You know, I make these mistakes and wind up getting charged on wire fraud and mail fraud charges. 2013, I wind up going to federal prison. I think at that point that my life is over and that I'm not really sure how I'm going to get through today, much less 10 years of this. Yeah. And I'm in prison about three weeks and my wife decides she's going to divorce me. And it just really wrecked me. Um, I never saw it coming. And so then I really thought my life was over. Wondering how I'm going to get through. Hating myself every day. And, and here's what I always tell people. 
I say, I never flew private. I didn't buy a big boat. I didn't have a fancy house or a fancy car. I was home every night for dinner. I was the neighborhood baseball coach. My wife and I had a great marriage. We were best friends. And I got ripped from that to live in a 12 by 12 room with three men I didn't know, nor did I like, wondering what happened in my life. Six weeks later, I walk in the gym one day. I'd gone from running marathons to being 35 pounds overweight. I hated myself. This guy walks up to me and he goes, hey, look, don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take from you everything you've ever had. They can take your business. They can destroy your apartments. They can take your money. They can ruin your family. But what they can't take is who you are and what you're made of. They can't take what helps you to build that $100 million company. That's awesome. And, you know, we all have these defining moments in our life. And you might have one or two in a lifetime. But for me, this was it. It clicked. It was like somebody turned the light switch on. And I listened. And I said, okay. He said, come to my class every day. Work out. You'll start losing weight. You'll start feeling better. And I took him up on the offer. And I started going to the gym. I started working out. I lost weight. I felt better. I wound up going to college. I, got a, I went to college for four years. I got a bachelor's degree in theology. I wrote two books. I wrote a book called Exit Plan, Your Complete Guide to Multifamily Investing and Why You Need an Exit Plan Before You Buy. I wrote a book on property management. I wrote an ethics course. I, I taught real estate investing, property management, and ethics in prison for six years. Wow. I was on an outreach program. I went into the community. I told my story 40 times to small business owners and local college students. Mm-hmm. I met a professor from the University of Minnesota and he and I co-authored a paper together that we had published in the Business Journal of Ethics um, that gets taught at the collegiate level today for forensic accounting and sales and marketing classes. And today I'm back home. I'm in the coaching and training business. I, I teach multifamily investors how to build their business, live a balanced lifestyle. Um, recently was approved by the SEC to go back and sponsor deals, be an issuer of securities and partnered with two of my coaching clients. And we wound up just closing our first uh, apartment deal in Florida. So, Wow. What a story. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. We will continue this interview next week and dig deeper into every single mistake he made and how he's doing things differently today. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at monicarlorei.com on top of the page. And I will see you next time.